We are back in the Gospel of John after a bit of a hiatus. And I'm not exaggerating when I say I'm beyond excited about this. I love this Gospel. We've been in this Gospel now some 18 months. And we are on the ninth installment of the study guides. And so, so if, you, if you're not familiar with what these are, or if you're new or whatever, these are, these are booklets, these are guides we provide for you that kind of outline the different weeks of what we're covering that particular week in the Gospel of John. You can take notes during the sermon that is allowed. Okay, you're allowed to take notes during the sermon. You can use these for your personal devotional quiet times. You can also take them to community group. They have community group questions in them. And these are just a super rich resource that um, a number of our team and volunteers work hard on. So, so we really appreciate it. If you did not get one of these when you came in, grab one when you leave. Now, if you have been through with us in this study through the Gospel of John, you know that John, or in recording the words of Jesus, often begins, Jesus does, by asking a question. And that's what we want to do this morning. I want to ask you a question. And, and here it is. It may not be what you've expected this morning, may not have come in here prepared for this, but, but here it is anyway. Christian, what's troubling you? What's troubling you this morning? Now, I don't mean what are you kind of worried about. Like, are you going to be able to score some FSU Virginia Tech tickets here in four weeks? Or, or kids like, what's my teacher going to be like? Or what's my schedule going to be? I don't mean those, those kind of worries, not that they're insignificant, but they, they pale in comparison to what we would call trouble, as the Bible defines it. Trouble with a capital T. See, trouble is a state we find ourselves in. And, and maybe for some of us, it's an acute state of trouble. It's ongoing. It's something, it's, it's a financial problem. It's an unpaid mortgage that you've had hanging over your head for months or years. Maybe there's an addiction in your family, like a drug addiction, a porn addiction, a gambling addiction that the whole family has sort of learned to live with and sort of orbits around in the context of your life. Maybe it's a marital conflict, whatever, just this acute ongoing thing that you wake up with every morning that just kind of hangs on you like a loose t-shirt. It's just something you can't get away from. In fact, it's so familiar, you just kind of grow numb to it. That, that's one kind of trouble. But there's another kind of trouble that's much more dramatic, that's much more sudden, that's much more shocking, that hits us like a tidal wave. That, that, that catches us unawares. We never saw it coming. You know, some of you have known that um, my sister, has, who lives in Kentucky, has been struggling with a very difficult pregnancy. And so she, she went in this past Tuesday to, sort, to get the ultrasound and see how the baby was doing. And 72 hours later, they have a 20-week-old stillborn baby boy that they have to have a, a funeral for today. And many of you women and family have been through something so, so similar. Didn't see it coming. Or maybe you walked in one day and your spouse, you think everything's great, and your spouse announces, I'm leaving you. I don't love you anymore. Or you get the call in the middle of the night from the Florida State Highway Patrol 
that there has been a terrible accident. I don't know. You, you know what I'm talking about. Trouble comes in many forms, whether it's acute and ongoing or whether it's sudden. But it's this exact kind of trouble that the disciples are experiencing in the upper room in John chapter 14. Now, it's been six, eight weeks since we've been in John. So just very, very briefly, here's what's happening. Remember, it was only 72 hours before that the disciples were part of the official entourage of Jesus as they came into Jerusalem as part of the triumphal entry. Tens of thousands of people were shouting Hosanna. And the disciples had built their lives around this Messiah figure, Jesus Christ, with the full expectation that he was going to Jerusalem to set up his throne to set up his reign, to kick out the blasted Romans once and for all. And they were going to be an integral part of this kingdom of Israel, Jesus' Messiah on earth. They were going to be part of the cabinet. In fact, we know from other gospels that they were, in fact, in the upper room that evening. Little did they know it was going to be the last night of Jesus' life. And they are arguing about who has the prominent place in the kingdom of God. And so th- there, is a, there is this vibe of expectation as they enter the room that night. But in the space of about 10 minutes, their world comes crashing down because Jesus pulls the stunner of all time. He says, it's not going to be that way. In fact, I'm going away. And where I'm coming, you can't come with me. And not only am I leaving you, but your expectations for what God is going to do in your life through my ministry are going to come crashing down. You're going to scatter. Not only are you going to scatter, but this is all going to happen at the hands of a betrayer, someone that you've intimately trusted for three years. Of course, Peter in the middle of this, never me, Lord, never me. And the last time we were in John, remember, Jesus turns to him and says, oh, really, Peter? Oh, really? Are you with me? You're not going to last the night. Your faith is going to crumble. So I ask you again, what kind of trouble is on your heart this morning? Can you identify with what's going on here with the disciples? Has this been a season where you have been laid low? You feel like the breath has been knocked out of you. Are you troubled? See, the disciples were greatly troubled. And Jesus speaks right into that. And as we look at what Jesus tells them and also what Jesus tells us, I, this, I find this an incredibly hopeful, an incredibly comforting text. No matter how big trouble has found you and with what size that capital T letter is that's laying on your heart this morning, it couldn't have been bigger than what was on Jesus's heart because he was going to the cross to take away the sins of the world. So we're just going to read seven verses this morning. I'm going to ask you to, if you can, to stand and I'm going to read these and we're going to pray and we're going to, we're going to dive in together. Beginning with John 14, verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be, or be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's pray. Father, what, whatever level of trouble lays upon our heart this morning, you've given us some truth this morning the most important truth that we could ever wrap our hearts and minds around, truth for troubled times, truth for troubled hearts, to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive the comfort of you through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may take your seats. Let's jump right to it. There it is in verse 1. Jesus tells them very plainly, let not your hearts be troubled. Now that word in the Greek means to shake to and fro, to move something around that's not meant to move around. So if you're ever in a plane taking an overseas international trip and you're way up high and you feel that giant ocean liner that you are flying in begin to shake and go up and down, it's not a pleasant experience. Why? If you're like me, you get sick at the drop of a hat and you throw up on the person in front of you. There there is that. But there's also this unsettling sense of this is not the way this is supposed to happen. This is supposed to be smooth and we're supposed to go across the air and cut through it like a knife. And when we're moving up and down, I feel scared. It's dangerous. It's troubling. that's That's the sense of the word. Now, what's interesting is that back in chapter 13, we looked at several, several months ago, it tells us that Jesus himself was troubled, which is important for us to, to understand because here he says, don't be troubled. And because I believe the Bible is authoritative and errant and fallible, I don't believe Jesus is contradicting himself. I think what he's telling us is that there is a, there is a way to be troubled that is righteous and good, but there is a way that's that there's another way to be troubled that is not based upon faith and belief in God. See, Jesus, and John Piper is very, was very helpful in fleshing this out. What troubled Jesus, what was going on in him was this sort of holy turmoil. He knew he had to get to the cross to fix what was wrong. He knew that there was this debt of unpaid sin out there. And that in order to to cover this sin and to purchase salvation for his people, he had to go to the cross to bear sin that wasn't even his. And his heart was troubled. That's a godly trouble. It's, it's It's a trouble based in love and concern. But it seems here, and as we'll see this as we unpack this today, the disciples had a different sort of trouble. It was a trouble based in unbelief. It was a trouble 
rooted in this idea of doubting God's goodness, doubting God's promises, doubting God's good and sovereign will. You know, I was looking, my sister texted me in the middle of everything that was going on, and clearly they were deeply troubled. But she says something interesting on her text. She said, but we, we know God is in control. See, her and her husband are, are trusting in God's purposes and plan. But trouble is sin if it leads you to the path of unbelief. If it, if it leads you to a place of bringing a charge against God to question his goodness, to mistrust him, to doubt what he says he is going to do. So I ask again, what troubles you this morning? Can you, can you relate? Jesus, as we're going to see, steps right into that place for us, right into that vacuum of despair. Every one of us, if we haven't felt, we most surely will. And he does three things. These will be our, th- our three points this morning. Number one, he issues a command. Number two, he articulates a conviction. Then thirdly, he proclaims a certainty. Now let's look at the command he issues. Let's go back to verse one. It's very clear in the Greek, let not your hearts be troubled. In other words, don't stop worrying. Don't stop the angst. Understand that in the Greek, this is not a request. This is not a suggestion. Um, This is not Jesus sort of tiptoeing up to the line to sort of check things out and change the play at the line of scrimmage. No, no, no. This this is a bold-faced request, but at the same time, it's not a dismissal. This is not grandma saying, now, now, son, it'll be okay, okay? Pretty soon it'll be all over. No, no, no. This is an order. It's command. It's It's a military injunction, And what we understand, and you get this instinctively, sometimes a situation, a crisis, is so urgent, is so needy, the trouble is so real, that it calls for immediate action. I don't know if you, any any of you witnessed in person the the 45 car pileup on I-10 a couple of weeks ago around Monroe Street. I I think relative to what it was, there was, there were very few catastrophic injuries, which is a a major miracle in itself, considering when you have trucks jackknifing all over the highway. And apparently that torrential downpour that has not left us the 40 days and 40 nights this summer, it's just ongoing, it's endless. Somebody slowed way down on the freeway. People don't do that. Okay, please, please don't do that. Slowed way down on the freeway, was hit from behind, and it started this catastrophic accident. So what happens when the crisis is at hand? I mean, do you think people kind of show up and start pontificating? Hmm, I wonder what happened here. Hmm, let's, we need to have an investigation. How about some lawmakers come down and look at laws we can pass to make driving in the rain more safe? No, 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 that's, is that what happened? No, no. Leon County, the state of Florida, descended upon that accident scene. Right? There was fire and rescue, and there was ambulances, there was medical personnel. It was all hands on deck. And that's 
why Jesus steps into the breach and he issues this command. This is a spiritual crisis. Faith is at stake. And so Jesus gives two parts to this command. The first is, don't be troubled. That's kind of the negative. Instead, believe in me. Let me say it in a different way. Stop worrying. Start trusting. Now, this is, this is really important. Jesus is not telling them to merely suppress a sinful desire. See, that's sometimes the way that we can deal moralistically with our kids or with people in our lives. Stop doing that. Or men, or men in accountability groups, stop lusting. Stop gossiping. Stop being angry. Jesus points us to this idea that there has to be a superior desire. There has to be a superior joy to replace whatever it is that you're trying to suppress. So for Jesus, it's not merely a matter of stop worrying, but he provides an alternative. He provides a path. He provides, shall we say, a way forward, a solution. And he says, believe in me. In fact, if you, if you believe in me, you'll believe in the Father. If you believe in the Father, you'll believe in me. They're one and the same thing. And we have to Stop for a second and say, no, that's a little confusing, Pastor Paul. Don't these disciples already believe? Let me take us back to the very beginning of this series. when We talked about the purpose of the gospel of John, John 20, 31. I've written these things to you so that you might, what? Believe. And in believing, have life in his name. And John in this 18-month journey we've had through his gospel, we've seen that he's taken incredible pains to help us understand what belief is. And, and John, is, John has said over and over, belief is not just having a set of intellectual facts. That's, that's what nominal Christianity has. Oh, yes, Pastor Paul, I believe the creeds, and I believe Jesus did this, and I believe that, but it doesn't really have any impact on my life. John has taken great pains to show us that believing is actually like drinking, like the living water. Dr believing is like eating the bread of life. John's also told us that believing is like seeing. Believing is like entering. He's, he's, he's had all of these rich metaphors to communicate to us. Therefore, folks, belief is not merely a one-time decision. Belief is an ongoing expression. It's an ongoing reality where we are entrusting ourselves to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, there was a point in time where we came to believe that he was the Son of God and that we're giving our life to him. But there is a call every single day to keep on believing, to trust him, to entrust ourselves to him. See, Jesus is addressing something very real. Whether you have walked with Jesus for a day or for a lifetime, that when trouble strikes, when trouble lands on your doorstep, you and I are almost hardwired, programmed to, because of our sinful nature, to not believe God. And I don't mean philosophically or even theologically. I'm talking about 
functionally. I'm talking about street level. I'm talking about in the heart of our hearts, believing that God really is for us. I counseled um, a man many years ago, not, not in this church, um, who was, he was a Christian, um, was in his mid-40s, was involved in a, in a romantic relationship with a non-Christian, and it was unhealthy in, in every way. And he was asking my counsel, should he marry this person? You see, the, the, his, his clock was ticking, he thought. It was, if he was ever going to get married and have children and have a family, surely God would not have provided him this open door to walk through. So should he do this? And as we kind of unpacked that a little bit and sort of gotten under the layers of the onions, it became clear this was not an issue about this person. This was not an issue about who she was, and this was an issue for him about God. God, am I going to trust you? I, I think I'm supposed to, I think in order, I, I think that I'm entitled to sort of this sort of life and this sort of outcome in order for you to show your goodness to me. And so, so, so well, why wouldn't you want me to do this? Guys, that's fundamentally an issue of unbelief. See, I often tell people in counseling, and some of you have heard me say this, what you're experiencing here, folks, is not a marriage issue. What you're experiencing here is not a parenting issue. What you're experiencing here is not a health issue. What you're experiencing here is a God issue. Are you going to believe? Are you going to trust? Are you going to keep following, moving forward in faith, being obedient, even if you can't detect God's ultimate plan and purpose? I got news for us all. It may be, for many of us, and for all of us in many ways, not until eternity, till we can look back and see the hand and the thread of God in our lives, do we fully, truly understand. We're going to get into this more in just a moment, but could you imagine for a second if Jesus had given the disciples their way and had not left? What do you think would have happened? There have been some more miracles and some more cool things happened and Maybe he brings the archangels down. Maybe he establishes his reign and authority. But here's the problem. They weren't going to be a part of it because of their hearts, because of their sin, because of their alienation from God. And Jesus says, I've got to go and do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. So he issues a command to them. He issues a command to us. Believe. Secondly, not only does Jesus issue a command, he articulates a conviction. Okay, look at verse 2. Jesus doesn't paint over this. He doesn't, he doesn't just give them a pat on the back and say, you know, it's, I'm really not going to be gone that long. No, no, no. He's very real. He says, I am indeed leaving. I am going. This crisis, it is a real crisis. 
Jesus is not painting over that. He says, the reason that I'm going is to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. Now understand something. Jesus here is giving them the reason for why they should believe. Okay, he's not, this is not just blind belief, but, he, but he's actually peeling back the curtain a little bit and saying, I have to leave, and, and if I don't leave, I can't go and to prepare a place for you. And if I don't prepare a place for you, I can't come back and get you. Here is why I want you to continue to trust me. And he uses this metaphor is that I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. Now, what in the world is that? Why, why does Jesus intend that to be a comfort for them? Why does Jesus intend that to be a comfort for you and for me? And I think to understand that, we have to know what the father's house is. And contrary to the to the, to the song back in the 90s. It's not the place where we play football, but I, we, maybe we will. I don't know. John MacArthur makes a couple of interesting points about this. You know, it's back in John 2, Jesus actually refers to what as the Father's house? The temple. He says, I, I've got business to do about my Father's house. I'm going to my house, Father's house to pray. I am... I, You've made my what? Father's house a den of robbers. He actually refers to the temple as the father's house. But it's very clear, Jesus is not talking about the physical temple here when he talks about going to the father's house. Because first of all, Jesus has already declared this place is corrupt. It's full of false religion. God does not worship in a... In a God does not live in a, in a temple made by human hands. In fact, Merely 40 years after this, God is going to send the Romans to utterly destroy that place. And you can still go there today. Went with some of you last fall, saw the ruins just as they were 2,000 years ago. Now, I don't, I don't think that Jesus is talking about the physical temple when he talks about the Father's house. A, a, a second reason I don't think that is because of of what Hebrews 9.24 tells us. Let's look there. It says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, in other words, the temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. In other words... The things that were in the earthly temple were in some ways shadows. They were copies. They were, they were pointers to heavenly realities. And we don't fully understand exactly what that is like, and we'll find out one day. But in other words, the temple didn't exist merely for the temple. It was to point to heaven. It was to point to the eternal presence of God. See, the temple on earth was just a copy. The Father's house, folks, that Jesus is clearly referring to here is nothing less than heaven itself. And don't think about heaven merely as a place. Think about heaven as the uninterrupted presence and fellowship with God that we will one day have for eternity. 
You know, isn't it interesting in the scriptures that there's a lot of metaphors used for heaven? Sometimes heaven is referred to as a country when the writer wants to communicate how vast it is, how big it is, how spacious it is. Sometimes heaven is referred to as a city to communicate all the different sorts and kinds and ethnicities and backgrounds will be represented in the kingdom of God. Sometimes heaven is referred to as a kingdom. And that's to remind us that there is no democracy in heaven. There is simply one king, one ruler, that is Jesus Christ, who will order and rule things, all things, perfectly. But here... He uses the metaphor, Father's house with many rooms. Now, what is he trying to, Jesus here, trying to communicate to us? Why is he saying that this is to be a source of immense comfort for every one of us in the midst of our trouble? The word rooms, mino, it only occurs twice in the entire New Testament here, and then in John 14, 23, and let me read that for you. Let me, let me see if this sort of opens up the idea of what Jesus means by Father's house and rooms. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Now listen to this. And we will come to him and make our what? Home with him. Same word, mino. To make our home with him. This is very intentional, I think, on Jesus' part. See, in Jewish culture, you sort of, families lived on sort of the family compound. And don't think Branch Davidian, that, don't think about that kind of compound. We're talking about like, a, like an estate. And so it would start with the patriarch of the family, and he would build his house, and he would raise his kids there. But when the kids got older, when they had families of their own, they would add on to the house in a, in a dwelling that was still considered, though, to be a part of the father's estate. So over time, you had this sort of endless parade of like one house but many dwellings as more and more and more people were added to it. If you, one of our Four Oaks members is, does construction down at all the stuff that's going on at TMH. If you drive by... There's like additions all the time happening over there, aren't there? But it's one hospital with many, many additions, many, many rooms. What's Jesus trying to remind us here? What's he trying to communicate to us in the midst of our trouble? He says, being a part of the Father's house is like being a part of the Father's family. This is, he is your eternal Father. He is not going to leave you. He's not going to abandon you. In fact, any sort of distance, any sort of trouble that you and I might be experiencing today is all in grand preparation for the day that one, that one day... We will move in, and I don't know what the house looks like. I mean, don't think about bling and, you know, Taylor Swift posters and all. Don't, don't think about that, okay? Star Wars bed sheets. I, I don't know. I think it's a metaphor to communicate that we are home. 
And when you're home, you never have to say goodbye. And Jesus is saying, I, I must go away. Because I have to do this work on the cross for you. That you might come in one day live with me eternally. It just gives us a, a, an eternal perspective, doesn't it? This life is a vapor. It is over. We're talking to a couple yesterday and talking about our kids and looking at how all, old all of them are now. And, and you, you know where you are, family. Some of you are empty nesters. You can't believe it has gone by that fast. Life is a mist. It is a vapor. Trouble is replaced upon trouble as quickly as we can face new troubles. And Jesus says, there's a grander reality here. I'm going to prepare a place for you. One day you will get to move in. You'll never, ever have to say goodbye. You've heard me quote C.S. Lewis from the last battle before. But when all the Pavinci children are, are, are in Narnia... And they're enjoying joy to the fullest. They're, they're with Aslan. They're with each other. They're having the greatest of time. And Aslan looks at them and says, Dear ones, you're, you're happy, but you're not as happy as I wish you would be. And they said, Because, Aslan, we're so afraid that you're going to send us back. And then he tells them, Have you not yet guessed? See, th- that's the reality that Jesus is pointing them to. And he's pointing us to. But how can we be certain? Last point. Jesus proclaims a certainty. Thomas, um, who actually, I I secretly love Thomas. Okay, Some pastors have pictures or sculptures of the Apostle Paul. I would love one of Thomas if you want to give me a Christmas gift. I love Thomas. Thomas just speaks what all of us are already thinking, doesn't he? He just says, um, Jesus, um, we don't even know where you're going. <laughs> like, well, how, like what's, we, how can we follow you if we don't even know where you're going? How can we know the way if we don't know where you're going? You know, that's us in so many ways, isn't it? We just want the answer. Jesus, I've got trouble all over my life. Can you just tell me? how I'm going to get through this. Can you tell me what's on the other end of this? Can you you sort of give me a glimpse and let me know where we're going? I've got financial trouble. Tell me which financial plan is getting me out of this mess. Who's the relative that's got to die for me to get myself out of this mess? God, what? I'm lonely. I can be obedient for a while, but can't you just give me like a sneak preview of where we're, of where we're heading here, who, who I'm supposed to marry, who I'm supposed to be with? And Jesus says something really interesting. See, that's us. We're just like Thomas. Lord, show us the way and we'll do it. He says, Thomas, Thomas, look in verse 6. I am the way. I am the way. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. There's not, Jesus is not saying here that he's three separate things. I'm the way, the truth, and life. He's saying, I am the way. And, and the reason I'm the way is that in me is truth and in me is life. That's how the, the Greek is constructed. The way is the main clause. And Jesus says, the reason you know I'm the way, 
And that whatever trouble is lurking in your heart this morning that you can follow me unconditionally is that I am the only one that's true. I'm the only one who gives life. I'm the only one who is a perfect representation of God. See, I am not a way or one of the ways or, see guys, postmodern spirituality at its bottom is utterly hopeless because you can never know anything for sure. Jesus says, Thomas, I am the way. Isn't it interesting? Read through the book of Acts. What was the primary identification that the early church in the book of Acts had? It was called, they were called, Christians were called the followers of what? The way. Hmm. That'll get you in trouble today. Tell people you're a follower of the way. Not only will it get you ridicule, it might get you physical harm. One day in our lifetimes, no doubt, it will be much, much worse than that. But Jesus is telling us, this is your only hope. This is your only foundation for hope. I am the way. If this is all about getting to the end of time and just hoping we've done enough, hoping we've, we, we've chosen the right path, then, then what are we doing here? Jesus says, I am the way. You know, former Pastor Rob Bell, who's sort of an advocate for Christianity with no lines and no absolutes, was doing a book tour. He was doing one of his, his books on love wins or one of these things. And a, and a man, had his wife was struggling with the same issue that, that my sister has been. They're, they're, they were told their baby would not survive. And he asked Rob Bell, what do I do? How do I think about God in this? And this is what Rob Bell says. Anyone who quotes from Romans and says it's all part of the plan, they can't walk with you. He told the man to look for people who will be present with him and offer him solidarity, not solutions. Because I don't want solidarity. <laughs> we can all be... We can all have amazing solidarity on the deck of the Titanic all the way to the bottom. Jesus says, I have a solution for you. I am the way. Look at verse 2. Jesus says something really interesting. I, just, I, I love just Jesus throws these things in here. He says, if it were not so, would I have told you? See, one thing the disciples had learned above anything else, Jesus always told the truth. Even when it was bad news, Jesus always told the truth. Whether it was go on ahead and find the donkey in Jerusalem or find the little five loaves and two fish thing that I'm going to multiply or whether it was I've got the power to stop this storm or I'm going to be delivered up into the hands of, of wicked men they knew they could trust what Jesus said. If nothing else, they knew this. That's why when he told them, one of you is going to betray me, they all were just in a tizzy of saying, is it me? Is it me? Because they, they knew Jesus didn't lie. Jesus reminds us, if it were not so, would I have, would I have told you? 
Would I, would I have told you this? Would I have told you this, Four Oaks? And then we say, but why can't God just take us there now? I mean, you know that's what the disciples had to be asking. Why can't you just take us there now, Jesus? Because it says here that he's got to go prepare a place. What does that mean? You know, many of you followed, as, as I did, with raft attention, the plight of, the, of the, the soccer team in Thailand, young boys stuck in the cave, miles underground, um, cut off because of monsoon rains and going through this ordeal. But can you imagine being one of those boys the first time you saw a diver come up into the cavern? Can you imagine your relief? Can you imagine your ecstasy? Can you imagine like, yes, we are finally going to be delivered. But is that the way it happened just like that? Imagine what you felt when you saw that diver leave. Why did the diver have to leave? Because he had to go help prepare a place. He had to map the cave. He had to bring the resources. They weren't ready. It was going to require a gargantuan rescue operation. Who knows how large and how long. They had no idea. If they had known what was going to be involved in getting them out of the cave, they probably, they might have been tempted to say, I don't know if I want to leave the cave. Because there's a spiritual reality here. Jesus says, I've got to do things you have no idea about. One, I've got to go to the cross, disciples, and die for you. If I don't leave, you're going to perish. He says, Four Oaks, I, 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 can't come, I can't come get you now because I've got things I want to do in your life. I've got things I want to do in your heart. I want to prepare you for eternity. Four Oaks, I have people you know who are not yet a part of this kingdom that I want to use you to bring in. So walk with me. Believe in me. Be faithful unto me. See, guys, Jesus is not the means to our destination. He is not the person who helps us get to where we really want to go. Jesus is the destination. To to know him in his power and his sufferings, Jesus says, that's what I mean when I say I am the way. If you know me, that's enough. Because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And we're going to be together forever. So, Four Oaks, don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus came for you. He went to the cross for you. He's not done with you. He is with you. He is perfecting you. He is preparing you. So we can say with the confidence that Jesus says, don't let our hearts be troubled. Let's believe in God. I'm going to ask Pastor Rob to come up to lead us into communion this morning. What, what an amazing text that we get to, to meditate on as we come to the table this morning. That even as Jesus, who was deeply, righteously troubled at his own prospect of death, 
was still loving and focused on his disciples. And if it's true for them, it's also true for you.